This evening, it all starts on the page and in the bookshop. We pay tribute to those stories that started without thought of a silver screen in mind, when all the authors had were words and the images those words conjure up in your mind. Until, that is, some clever clogs came along and decided to show us all the image that they had in their head when they read those words. That's right, tonight we're talking films that started lives as books. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. Good evening and welcome to Sunshine Radio, broadcasting from St. Mary's Hospital on the Isle of Wight. My name is Tosin and I shall be your host over the next hour and a half as we go back through the annals of... Is it annals or annals? I'll say annals, that sounds less rude. (laughs) Through the annals of history to go back to pre-1980s Hollywood and see what they had to offer us and just fawn over how lovely those films were. With me in the studio are Sean. Hello. And Sharon. Hello. Yeah, who shall be my fellow intrepid explorers as we go back to find you stuff? How have you guys been doing over the last week? Yeah. Okay, I'm recovering from the shock of Bake Off going to Channel 4. Oh, yes. Oh, apart Big from news. that. <laughs> that is like major news. That's, I mean, why is that it's major like, no, news? It's like, no, my goodness. You've ruined it. <laughs> well, then it's, I look at this, and it's the kind of thing where you say, okay, yeah, you might argue as to why it's major news or not. But I have to admit that when I first saw that news, my first thought was, no! I've, I've, I've never seen the programme. <laughs> So I wouldn't know. Well, you see, my wife is quite a keen baker, so Ah, I've like I've got it. Yeah, we've gotten quite into it. Well, I haven't haven't gotten into it, but she's into it, and I've kind of like you know, I sort of like get the reflected Mm. the reflected interest of it. The the only real cooking program I watch, I think it's called Dinner Date or something, and that's because only because my parents watch it, where they like there's like four people and they all have to cook for each other, and there was just one which was so hilarious I, I quite enjoyed it this, camp, this yeah. woman come out and went I've made this this thing and it was horrible it was like some sort of moose thing but you know <laughs> apart from that yeah, I don't know why and yeah I love shows. cooking but why? I don't like cooking shows yeah. why do cooking shows take over I don't know but Bake Off yeah that was big news big news no but I think Bake Off is a very very well made show though it's, yeah. it's very it's it's kind of like it's it, it's there's something almost cinematic about it how they make the simplest things seem so important yeah. it's like oh oh my god he didn't put the sugar in <laughs> and, <laughs> and so when you see them opening the oven it's like don't open the oven yeah it's gonna fall flat really really yeah. my yeah. goodness yeah. Really? what I don't oh, I, I think it's shocking. a it's a very well-made show and they they but figure out never, what no. sorry but then I've never watched The Apprentice the Apprentice. Oh. I never really watched The Apprentice either. I don't watch that either. Yeah, it's yeah. just kind of like, nah, yeah. yeah. But the Break Off got the highest rating of any show on television yeah, last no, year. The I final got something like 15 million people watched the final last year, The Break Off. Well, it was on like the news, on the radio. It was like Radio yeah. 4 was saying, Yeah, oh, Nadia no. won. And they, they, had a, they even had like a panel talking about, you know, for like 10 minutes on, you know, like different people talking about, oh, they shouldn't have gone to Channel 4, and then other people were arguing for and against. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> well, it's a bloody TV. Well, yeah, I know, I know, but then it's, I, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure because the thing, even though it wasn't made by the BBC, it seemed totally, totally f- yeah. like it fit the BBC. Absolutely. And people were like saying, okay, now it's going to Channel 4. What are we going to get? We're going to get like naked bake off. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be Davina McCall. It's like, no, no. <laughs> I refuse to watch it. <laughs> well, yeah, because Mel and Sue left as well. But Mel anyway, and Sue have gone. Oh. Yeah, but okay. Anyway, so, we shall move on. We shall move on from no cinematic-looking no cakes. Idea. We shall move on from cinematic-looking cakes and get back to just plain old cinema. Yes. And talk about. And first of all, I just want to say a big welcome to everybody from our adopted ward, Alveston, which I was walking around earlier today in there. And we'll just explain a little bit about the way this show works. So on this show, we will kick off by talking about a bona fide classic. Today, this is something that was actually written into the show where somebody suggested a film and said, this film, talk about it, it's a bona fide classic. So we are going to talk about that film to, uh, to kick off today. We'll, and then we'll go into the hospital and we'll have a patient choice where we ask a patient in Alveston Ward if they can recall the first time they ever went to the cinema, what they saw, who they went with, that kind of thing. We will now switch on to a Hidden Gem where we'll talk about a film that has been made that is great but more people a lot of people just do not know about it a lot of people have it sort of slipped under the radar and just slipped by a lot of people and we shall finish off today with an exception to the rule a film that was made after 1980 but is still awesome at any time and i think that's that's what we're going to do right Right. right. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. So we're going to kick off this week. We st- well, This week we kick off with a film that was suggested by somebody on Facebook. He wrote into the show and said, hey, this is what happens. And I might catch up with Glenn, who suggested this film. 
um, and ask him what he actually thought about the film, as in um, uh, why he chose this film, why he mentioned it. And it's a film, uh, Sharon, what year is this? 1971, is 1971. it? 1971. 1971, starring Alan Bates and Julie Christie, called The Go-Between. But this is, w- this is what Glenn had to say about what he thinks about The Go-Between. So I'm here with Glenn, and Glenn, you chose the go-between. You just want to tell us a little bit about why you chose the go-between as your choice for a classic movie. Right, well, I think it's, it's the sort of film that's kind of evocative of someone looking back over the past, and I just think the direction is really expresses that. I, I just think it's a really great film, it's really well shot. Cool. What about favourite scene from the go-between? Mm, I don't know about favourite scene is, but there's certain shots just over the, the pastures and uh, around the landscape that, and uh, sort of around the grounds of the house. But I can't think of a particular scene in general. Okay. What's your lasting memory of the film? just the sort of sense of uh, the sense of timing transient that kind of thing thank you very much Glenn okay and now Sharon you, you've seen this film and you're going to be taking the lead on this film for yes. us Yes. So uh, just be, we're going to play some music from the go-between. But first of all, before we do that, so Glenn's talking about like you know somebody looking back on his life and time and transient and all that kind of stuff. Could you just give us like a quick prezi of what is this film about? What is the setup? The setup is it's about the main the, the main character is is called Leo. You f- you see him as an older man and then you see him as a child. So you get immediately the picture that Glenn was sensing was that this is a man who's looking back on his life. Yep. And the key moment in his life and the defining moment that actually set the tone for the rest of his life. And so we, we meet Leo mainly as a 12-year-old boy who's, who's a middle-class boy who's gone to live with his upper-class friends for the whole of the summer. And he gets involved with this family, his best friend Marcus, and his sister Marion. And now he gets drawn into this intrigue between Marion, who is an upper-class, well-brought-up young lady, and the rough-and- ready neighbour who's a tenant farmer called Ted Burgess Mm. and unbeknownst to him Leo has been sort of drawn into becoming the go-between between them delivering letters between them and they both of them use him in different ways um, but they use his innocence uh, uh, almost against him that he delivers these uh, these letters in all innocence he thinks they're just pals and then he doesn't understand that there's something deeper that's going on between them and that he has become unwillingly a party to oh okay cool so it's it, it sounds it sounds a little bit like you know the central relationship sounds a little bit Lady Chatterley's lover. It is. It's an upper class woman and a lower class man. He's a a working man and she's a a, a well brought up young lady. So so obviously all the films we're talking about today were started off life as books. Yes, this is a book by Al P. Hartley that I've read as well. So I can do the compare and contrast. You can do the compare and contrast, but it yeah. was it was quite a well known book before it became a film. Yes. And uh, this film was a big noise when it was released in 1971. Oh, yeah, because it was Julie Christie at her sort of like incandescent vest. Oh, yeah. And Alan Bates at his most rugged and his most handsome. So they were both at the sort of peak of their powers at this early time, you know, because they sort of came to notice in the late 60s. But this was at the early 70s when they've lost that initial sort of, you know, shine. But they're at their sort of physical peak. Okay. Almost both of them. All right, cool. And uh, so, yeah, because I was reading a little bit about this and it seems like it was almost anticipated a little bit in the way like, you know, Gone with the Wind was and stuff like that. It went to the Palm Film Festival. It won a Palm Door. They had music from it, became like massive hits. And this is a song from the film by a guy called Scott Walker, who I've never heard of before. But it apparently was like a really, really popular song at the time called I Still See You from the soundtrack of The Go-Between. Okay.
I was thinking like massive shades of Matt Monroe there. Yeah, see, I didn't yeah. know that song at all. <laughs> yeah, apparently because that's actually from the 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 refrain you hear in the song is actually from the soundtrack of the film itself. So from the score, they use that that. Um, yeah. Yeah, but uh, when I heard that, I was like, "Oh, that sounds very Matt Monroe." Yeah. I yeah. guess I guess that was sort of popular around that time for film soundtracks, things like Love Story and all that yes, kind of stuff. Yes, having a proper ballad for the, the, the love theme. You have to have a proper ballad. You have yes. to have a proper ballad. So, okay, so... Um, back to the go-between. Back to the go-between. So, yeah, please. So y- Yeah, so I was just saying to when we were listening to that, because Sean hasn't seen it. <gasps> I know. Shock horror. Shock 1971, horror. you haven't seen it? I know. Well, this was my sister. It was like a... Girls so, film. Yeah, I it's remember them talking about mum and the girls and their mates. All oh, the go between the go. And I'm saying I get confused between yeah. between go between um, far from madding far crowd, from the madding crowd and, and Ryan's well, I said I thought it's far from madding crowd. Said, oh no, that's Ryan's daughter, Shawnee. I'm like, oh my goodness. So, <laughs> it <was in> a <laughs> muddle. So, but I think that's the misconception about the go between is that it's a romantic film. It's not a romantic film. Right, Actually, yeah. that at the heart of the story is this this tragedy of a child being drawn into an adult's world before their time. So he's a very much an innocent young boy, Leo. He's played by an actor called Dominic Gard, who does appear in all sorts of things, but as a really minor act- character actor. This is his big, his second film role. Yep. But he hasn't, didn't really go on to be amazing, but he is an outstanding in this. But he's an innocent 12-year-old boy. Um, this is set at the round about the time of the Boer War, so the turn of the 20th century. It's in very much, the, the, girl, the ladies are wearing like Edwardian long dresses. It's still the days of coach-drawn traffic there's no motor cars on the road yet and the biggest excitement in the life in the life of this country house is you know the annual cricket match between the villagers and the people from the big house oh yeah Mm. and so it's very much that class it's before the first world war so so class is very much still a big issue you've got your upper class you've got your middle class and you've got your your working man and leo is firmly in the middle class bracket so when he first turns up at this this for this summer because his mum's not well and can't look after him and his his dad has died he turns up you know and you can see that he's dressed as like a respectable little boy but he doesn't fit in with the rest of them and the, one of the first things they do is they buy him a new suit to wear right and and Marion takes him shopping for to buy a new suit. And Marion is the is the young lady in the house, played by Julie Christie. Mm-hmm. And so the so the themes. It's not actually it's not a romantic film in that it the, it's about the romance. The story is it's about this almost corruption of this young boy, however he sees what he shouldn't be seeing, and you see the older Michael Redgrave looking back at this this endless summer, and it's like a really hot long summer where. The sun's always shining and the, the the wheat is sort of waving in the fields. So when Glenn was talking about you see these scenes, you do the, 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 the film does linger on these shots of like this idyllic Norfolk countryside where you've got these mm-hmm. acres of sort of swaying wheat fields <laughs> and you see like the horse-drawn ploughs in the distance. And when you go to Ted Burgess's farm, there's like a duck pond in the middle of his yard and there's like a haystack and there's the cows are just like in around. So it's a, this sort of rural idyll. But then under the surface, there's this, this, these sort of currents that you don't right. see straight away. Right. So, and so it's a little bit like, um, oh, well, you know how people like there's a film American Beauty, and people say that it was a deconstruction of the suburban myth in America. Yes. Where it all looks nice and good on the surface, but underneath, look at what burbles because we have people, and people are not the best. Yeah. There's all sorts of things going on underneath here. Yeah. And I think, and so sometimes with the themes, you have this romantic theme, but sometimes you get this sort of dark thread running through it. And so you you, you think it's just going to be, oh, it's a lo- love story. And then you hear this dark theme, you think, no, there's something else going on here. <laughs> and it's about deception as well, you know. She's lying to her family, she's lying to her fiancé. She's got this fiancé, Viscount Trimling. I was going to say, is she married or Ooh. got someone else? She's got a fiancé. And he was injured in the Boer War, so he's quite he's got like a disfiguring scar on his face. Ooh. He's played by Edward Fox. And Ooh. he's likeable and he's charming and he's good to Leo. And uh, what, there's one very telling scene. There's a few scenes that are just key to understanding it. But, but you can understand his character the most, um, Viscount Trillingham, because when Leo, first of all, understands that Marion has basically been playing him false, he sits down with him one day and he says, I've been reading this book. Can you tell me what it means? And it's a man finds out that his wife has been seeing another man and they, have a, they fight a duel. And he says, why should they fight the duel? Isn't it the woman's fault? And the Viscount turns to him and says... It's never the lady's fault. <laughs> and you, so you know there that whatever Marion does, she, she, he is going to forgive her. And that it's never going to be his fault. It's always going to be Ted's fault if they ever get found out. Right. Oh, so wow. that's a theme that you... you it's, 
it's sort of introduced in this com- this innocuous conversation between this boy and this this experienced man. So it sounds like a film with a law in its mind. Yeah, it's there's sort of, sort of symbolism. There's a great scene where they have a cricket match between again the, between the villagers and Ted sort of leads the cricket match, and the house and the Viscount Trimling leads the house part team, and it's neck and neck. And Leo is the twelfth man, and one of the, the house team gets gets an injury, so he's brought on at the last minute to become the, to replace the eleventh man on the cricket team. Mm-hmm. And Ted is batting, and they're like only a couple of runs in it between the villagers and the, the house, and then. Leo catches Ted out, and it's completely symbolic of <laughs> the, what, what, how mm. the story progresses. That he's this—he's been drawn into this, and yet he's the one who catches him out. out. Uh. And so it's this, this cricket match is like key to the the what happens in the story. So, and it all there's all, there's a big denouement during Leo's birthday party as well. So it's using a happy occasion for it all to blow up and all to become exposed. So, so who directed it? It's directed by an actor, uh, sorry, a director called Joseph, I don't know if it's called Lucy or Losey, L-O-S-E-Y. He directed a a quite extraordinary film with Dirk Bogard in the 60s called The Servant. Okay. So so that's all about hidden Hidden, passions and secrets and... Skeletons in yeah, the closet. Skeletons. <laughs> so he obviously knows how to deal with this yeah. sort of subject matter. He's done loads of things, but that's the one that I went. Oh, that's the film that you would want to. Yeah. Yeah, you you want to track down. You want to do the comparison to. Yeah, yeah but I don't know him for. I didn't recognise a lot of his other films. He died in oh. 1985, so his. Oh, so not, his that, not that long. No, his catalogue is mainly sort of 50s and 60s, and in early it's the early into the 70s. Well, it, yeah, because it sounds the, the because the film when you mention it when you just mentioned the initial thing it immediately sounds intriguing mm-hmm. that look at this this boy looking back on or this man looking back on his life looking about when he was a boy and what actually happened what like you know and everybody's wondering okay, what happened what's going in there like secrets buried for years and all that kind of stuff are they going to yeah. come back it sounds immediately intriguing and the the but the funny thing is when you talk about it and you talk about it being kind of it's like uh it sounds like, like a tragic romance. Yes, and, and you know it's making a comeback at the moment because it's actually it's a musical. It's a musical on the West yes, End. Yes, so I wasn't starring, aware that they starring done Michael it. Yeah, Crawford. as the what, old Leo. What the go between? The go between. Yeah. yeah. Wow. The go between is like a musical, uh, and it's and the way they've done it, it's it's kind of like because I was in London and on the tubes, they have all these posters that just have Michael Crawford's face in them, and they say the go between. And the way they talk about it is like you're supposed to know what this is. Yeah. It's like the go between, the Asian story for all time. And I'm kind of like, never heard of it. <laughs> so, so I was quite interested when this showed up on a list. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, that must be the, oh, what's going on here? I was like, so, um, but it sounds quite, it sounds quite like, you know, the, as I said, tragic romance. Yeah. And there is tragedy in it. I mean, it, when everything blows up during Leo's birthday party, it does have tragic consequences. Yeah. And Julie Christie, because I think the, the main yeah. thing, main film I've seen Julie Christie in is, it's actually one called Darling. Yes, that's when she really was. Well, when she was like, like a, you know, swinging sixties yeah. kind of like uh, thing. It's the main one I've seen her in, and I remember thinking, watching that, and everybody talks, "Oh, Julie Christie, you should see her. She's amazing. This is the this is the role that explains why everybody loved Julie Christie. Look at her in Darling." And I looked at her and went, "She's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really annoying, selfish character." Yeah, she but, is. <laughs> but uh, well, she's similar in this. She's quite a selfish character in this. Yeah, it, it does seem like she, well, I haven't seen much Julie Christie stuff, but it seems like people did kind of, that she was kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, she's going to do all these horrible things, but you can't really, you can't really be annoyed at her. You can't. Because you can't, it's Julie Christie. Because it's Julie Christie. Because in some ways, the, the, the relationship between Ted and Marion, um, she is almost like the hardened one. And yep. Ted is almost like the innocent. Because in some ways you expect, like he's, everyone talks about him as like a ladies' man, a lady killer, a bit of a lad. And he, Leo doesn't understand any of these phrases, and he says, "No, lad, I thought he was a great man." And it's and they don't answer him because <laughs> they're like going, "Yeah, because you don't you're, need you're to a know. Kid. You don't you're know any of other stuff." And but in some ways, it's Ted who's the innocent, and it's Marion who's the much tougher character. And as what the, the as it sort of unfolds, that becomes a bit clearer. As ultimately, when you get this, there's a conversation between the older Leo and one of the main protagonists later on. And it becomes clear, you know, that who was the strong one in this relationship and who was one who was actually the softer, the more vulnerable one. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't her. <laughs> well, well, there you go. Ooh, ooh, 
the thing is, everything I've heard uh, about this actually makes me want to watch. And so you, you yeah. said you read the book. I read the book as well, yeah. And this adaption of it is very close to the book, actually. There aren't many things I go, oh, you missed that really key scene out. The only thing I would say, in the book, there's a scene where they will have to sing a song at the, the party after the cricket match. Mm-hmm. And Ted comes up and he sings, take a pair of sparkling eyes. And Leo gets up and he sings a sacred song, um, Angels in the something, of Bright and Fair or something. And he's supposed to have the voice of a chorister and there's the, like a voice of an angel and it makes everyone sort of look at him and go, oh, this beautiful young voice. But he hasn't got a good voice in this film. That's the only thing I'd say. <laughs> but Leo, he's got, you can tell that he, he's got a schoolboy voice but he hasn't mm. got a, that angelic voice of a boy chorister yeah and leo is supposed to stun everyone into silence when he sings because they are blown away by the beauty of his the purity and the beauty of his voice this is in the book yeah, yeah and that's it's supposed to be sort of symbolic again of yeah. like his, the purity of his soul because at this point he's completely innocent, innocent of what's around him and his voice just like communicates to that purity but in the film, he it's, he hasn't got that that pure voice, but it's still and then it's so that moment doesn't become as pivotal as you'd think it would be. But that's my only quibble is that yeah he didn't have the stunning voice that you that Leo has to have. Yeah, but it sounds like generally speaking, you're you're with Glenn on this. Yeah, I think it it is. It's a film that if you want that grand romance, it's not one of those sort of films. It's more quite it's quieter and it's more reflective and there's these sort of layers but you know if you like your sort of layered and your sim- you know, films with symbolism and oh yeah things and it's written by the I think the screenplay is written by Harold Pinter yeah I was just about to say that so I was you like, know <laughs> it's not going to be fluff when he yeah. gets and yeah, holds yeah. to adapt it when he and gets his when yeah. he gets his hands on it you know that the, the essentially when when Harold Pinter gets his hands on something I think okay someone's going to die yes <laughs> so, so with, with like if you was to compare it with Ryan's daughter and would would you say it was you know it was better or, or, you, or well the three that we sort of mentioned the Brian's yeah. daughter and Far from the Madding Crowd and the Go Between yeah. my personal favourite is the Go Between of the three right. of those okay. I should take that on recommendation so because I, I like I Thomas Hardy and I like Far from the Madding Crowd yeah. but again I find Bathsheba she really winds me up yeah <laughs> I, I, I saw the recent version of Far from the Madding Crowd really liked it yeah but I did think that Bathsheba Everding was an idiot. Yes, and I've seen sort of the three adaptions of it. I saw one. I saw the Julie Christie one with Alan Bates. He's Gabriel Oak, and we said Terence Stamp was yeah, Sergeant I Troy. Stamp and Sergeant then there was Troy. one in the eighties, and I can't remember the cast at all. It's just gone out of my head. And then there's a more recent one. And every time I watch it, I think Bathsheba, you're just stupid. <laughs> you make all the wrong choices. <laughs> and it's like it's staring you in the face it's right there yeah <laughs> and yet you choose the wrong thing yeah. every time yeah yeah, that, that's, that, yeah. That, that's how I felt when I watched Anna Karenina oh yeah, cause, uh, yeah. Well, uh, the uh, movie the recent yeah the, the recent oh. movie but then it's like Karen. it wasn't even about the movie it wasn't about the movie because I kind of, I think there was some stuff that they did in that movie that I thought was quite inventive the way yeah. that it's all kind of done on a set and it's not really the, so you can see how like they and have all these the sort of scene changes and, stuff, and all that yeah. and I, Absolutely. I thought oh that's really really inventive but it's the story and the, the central story that they did in the film the Karen Knightley movie doesn't really change and I remember just wondering going why the heck does everybody see this woman as a heroine she's an idiot she's not no. <laughs> I was through, through that movie I was just saying bring on the train <laughs> for goodness sake being on the train is again, so long that's <laughs> where we've we're sort of our theme is sort of literary adaptions I think yeah. that's where I think people fail the, lit- the Anna Karenina right. because it's not just about she's the name of the, the book but it isn't just about her it's like four strands mm. and it's all the different types of married love basically It's because he wrote uh, Love and Marriage a short story about four years before Anna Karenina which Tolstoy and then the themes are developed so you've got four marriages and you're supposed to actually compare the marriages to each other Mm. and it's looking at the different types of how these relationships each in their own way fail and each in their own way succeed and so Anna Karenina is just one of them and her relationship with Vronsky is like one of the themes but they all forget about sort of Dolly and oh I forget her name of her husband and Levin and Kitty and they forget about um, Vronsky and Anna Mm. and so they just and, and Karenin himself they, they ignore all those bits and they just focus on Anna Karenina and that's where I think nearly every adaption of it fails well yeah cool because uh, maybe that's maybe but that's sorry it. we're not talking about Anna Karenina we're not talking so about so I apologise for no, getting on my no, horn no, 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 that was good. great it's really good because they're obviously passionate about these types yeah, of things and it's books. great to see Yeah, uh, we're talking about book adaptations but thank you very much yeah. for that Glenn and thank you very much for that Sharon the go between the go between and now we take a little bit of a break from our theme we go a little bit away from book adaptations because every Friday we go into our adopted ward Alveston and we speak to one patient asking them 
uh, what the first film they saw at the cinema was. Today I bumped it. I bumped into Mick French, who was just about to go home, and he before he go into talking about everything that he, well, you know, the, well, the film he saw first in the cinema, he had this to say about the care that he's received in the hospital so far. You were just sort of talking about the the care you've gotten since you've been here. Yeah, brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Was that, was that the nurses? Everybody, well? even the receptions are good. <laughs> Smashing. We couldn't wish for better. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, so that was Mick. That was Mick, and he had to that to say about the staff in Alveston. So all the staff in Alveston, he thinks you were brilliant, all the way down to the receptionist. He's just had a uh, new replacement. But we go into speaking about the first one we saw in the cinema, and this is what he had to say. A lot of that is coming back, yeah, the, yeah. the old films. Yeah, yeah, what do they say? Preserve them. No, yeah, they do. If, if it's a good enough film, yeah, they'll yeah, enter yeah, it. Yeah, like, you know. yeah. Oh. Oh, you okay? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what about you? What was the first film you remember seeing at the cinema, and who did you see it with? Probably a f- Saturday cinema, well, for the kids. Um, so it was a spacecraft, black and white, I think it was. All right. Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember who you went with when you went to see that? By myself, I think. By yourself? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Long time ago. I'm 73 now. Good enough. That's good enough. Yeah, they used to have a Saturday cinema for the kids. Do you remember anything particularly about the spaceship or the the sci-fi thing that you saw? Like, what was there any particular storyline that kept coming back? Or I can't remember, Nay. It's a long time ago, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I can't remember. Okay, but what did you enjoy most about those when you went to go see them? Just getting out of a Saturday morning, going to the pictures. Well, it's true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is true. It is true. How about your favorite film of all time? All time, what from beginning? Don't really know. I have to think about that one. Yeah? Yeah. I think that you just enjoy watching over and over again. I like the old ones, yeah, definitely. Okay. You know, Char- Chaplin and Lauren Hardy and all that kind of stuff. Brilliant. They were clever people. Very clever. Yeah. Yes, and so that was Mick. Well, thanks, Mick. And if there's anything that we could Thank play you, for Mick. you tonight. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I kept bumping into his foot, and it was oh, uh, especially the, the knee that he just had replaced. So sorry, Mick. <laughs> really, really sorry about that. Um, yeah, so he had to speak about that, and I was thinking, like, you know, obviously, Saturday morning cinema shows up quite a bit on this show when we talk to people and we say, first one that you went on, yeah. the first cinematic experience of Saturday morning cinema. And he said, spaceship, black or white. And we're trying to figure out what it could have been. And we've, we've narrowed it down to a couple of choices, haven't we? Yeah. So what, what, what have we got, Sean? What do you reckon? Well, first? I think well, well, there was two that were pop, both both Buster Crab. There was Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. Yes, I and was thinking Buck same. Rogers. Maybe. Yeah. yeah all right. So it could be either, but the the spaceships were, you know, there were lots of spaceships in both of them, mm. and uh, you know, strange creatures and, uh, but they were serials. So you'd go like most children would go on a on a Saturday and and they would end on something going to happen. Oh, it's all cliffhanger. Exactly right. I was just yeah. looking up, I was going to say cliffhanger there. I think and that's it probably was the, a cliffhanger. They yeah. were, literally were hanging <laughs> off the side <laughs> of the that, cliff, That's, that's how they came up with the because, term yeah. cliffhanger. Yeah, because you had like westerns where like some wagon would be on fire and it would you'd see it go over the cliff and then yeah. you'd go, come back next week for... <laughs> for <laughs> it's like, next week's for, yeah. will he jump over the chasm? <laughs> and will it, he fall to his doom? <laughs> come back next week for the continuing adventures of... And then, the, then it'll be the same theme, but he's the, the cable ever just managed to jump out of the wagon just before it goes over the cliff, and he's he's good. So yeah, I mean they were really really popular. I mean my my dad, I think they must have been Saturday morning cinema must have been huge. You know, all the kids going because there was there was no TV, there was no yeah. You know that that was the entertainment. Yeah. So yeah. Like, and they they said it was mad because you'd have like a balcony and you'd be throwing popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, massive food just, yeah it was like food said it was you know it was quite mad but if there was a particularly good one and my dad always says Flash Gordon they always kept quiet in Flash Gordon because it was the Flash Gordon was probably one of the biggest uh, biggest Saturday morning because series. the funny thing is you mentioned Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and these are things that I both knew from the 70s incarnation yep. so I think it's like uh, the first the obviously Flash Gordon was the massive I've, I'd heard about it way before I ever saw it people were like Flash Gordon and I always knew it had this 70s thing and I thought that that's where it came from I didn't realise that there was this massive history behind I th- it I, I think that might have been they might have been like we're on the book theme I think they might have been newspaper serials newspaper yeah, yeah like comic books comic books type yeah. of thing so you know the, the, the funnies which which everybody loved Buck Rogers yeah, yeah. those 70 ones though Buck Rogers in the 25th century when yeah. I, with that little 
robot thing. The first time I actually heard about that was, you know, Looney Tunes. So like yeah, your, yeah. your Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and yeah. everything like that. They had a they had a. They did have a roboty thing, didn't well, they? Like, it, they had a roboty thing. They duck had a Martian. Dodgers. Exactly, Duck, duck Dodgers. Dodgers in the twenty first and a half century. Yeah, yeah. yeah with yeah, Marvin that, the Martian. Yeah, that, that was brilliant. That was the first Marvin the Martian. That was the first time I ever heard about it, and it was kind of like you had like Daffy Duck going, Duck Dodgers in the twenty first and a half. <laughs> and I was like, and I had no idea what he was spoofing or anything like that. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I love this stuff. Why does he say and a half? And he, then... always, he always used to have like a, a hat with one of those little furry bubbles on, didn't he? And like a ray gun. With... Oh, yeah, that's Marvin the Martian. Yeah. Marvin the Martian. <laughs> he essentially has, he, his hat looks like but, a cross between a Roman centurion yeah. thing and an upside down but, brush. But doesn't Daffy yes. Duck have a, like a hat with one of the, like a really tall, like an antenna on top of it? Oh, yeah, on top. yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah, he did. Like a thin, a thin <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah. A thin one with like a little antenna <laughs> on the top. <laughs> He's great. He was my favourite. Or Daffy uh, Duck. Daffy Duck. I You're despicable. Like yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, yeah, Daffy Duck was great. I mean, I suppose the cartoons would have been shown as well. You know, yeah, they used to have a rolling yeah, program, yeah. didn't they? Where rolling you had the, the sort of beef picture, the main picture, then you had the cereal mm. and the cartoon well, and the news, news strip. Everything, yeah. So you had a whole rolling program. So you could come in and at any point, couldn't you? And I think you could just watch it round. Yeah, it's called continuous performances. So yeah. Whereas now they have separate performances, so they kick you out. You yeah, because I know <laughs> mum... It's a shame when they came. I know mum, when they just, just turned me in, when it was the first time she saw a film, she liked it so much, she just stayed until it came on again. I did that with Zulu. And so it just, yeah, did a loop. 14, I'd stayed at the Continental Cinema and actually sat down and stayed through three performances. <laughs> <laughs> So I saw the, you know, like the matinee, the early evening yeah. one, and the, the late just evening. Just case, yeah, mum did the so same good. with like Inner the Six Happiness or something. Mm. She just liked it so much that they just stayed and watched it all round again. The thing is, that's the joy of cinema. Those films, when those particular films, you know, those cinematic films, when you see them in the cinema, you know, they, you can see them on TV, you can watch them on DVD, but those films you need to see in that the scale, cinema. Really, it's yeah. just the scale, you know, the big. 70 millimeter wrap around curved screen just like you know I, I hark back for those days thank goodness i saw the hateful eight and i think dunkirk i think dunkirk shot the, the new, same way isn't it? the new dunkirk the new dunk well christopher nolan who yeah. films like he's mm. he's a big advocate of film he nowadays like because nowadays everything is going digital, digital because it's yeah. cheaper yeah. it's cheaper and it's easier to actually film stuff but Christopher Nolan is like, no, he likes his film. I think he's actually using the same films that they filmed The Hateful Eight on. Is he? Are they going to show it at the Cineworld though? They will show this. I think they will because yeah. I, I don't think I don't think Christopher Nolan is as annoying as Quentin Tarantino is about, <laughs> about yeah. that. I think Christopher Nolan is more. He's more about IMAX. Every yeah. film that he does, he wants it to be in IMAX. Right. So you can see it in that I, massive, massive format. I have seriously considered going up to the BFI IMAX to actually see that. Just to watch it. Just to or watch to see Dunkirk. One. Yeah. I think it'll be a, an experience. I think so. Yeah. But anyway, back to Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday, yeah. I, I, Saturday, Saturday morning. I went, Saturday to, morning. I went to the IMAX one, so I wasn't that... Wasn't that? F- Actually, what, I've been the there BFI? twice. What, yeah, BFI? yeah, the BFI. Yeah. yeah. Is it not that? Oh, well, you no, know, it's good. I mean, the screen's massive, but I mean, it's kind of like the screen's massive, and that's a, that's that's it. Hmm. <laughs> the screen's massive, full stop. <laughs> and it's like, and for, so I was kind of like, oh, no, it's kind of cool, but nah. But it's, it's yeah, it's I, just big. Yeah, it's yeah. Big. I think uh, it probably didn't help that I saw Alice in Wonderland. Okay. And Man of Steel. <laughs> ah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> a Man of Steel, which is half a great movie, and Alice in Wonderland, which was a bit kind of like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> now the film I saw in IMAX then was Gravity. Ooh, and that, okay. was, that was absolutely that was made. That must have been made for IMAX because you f- did feel like you was in space. Yeah, well, yeah. I think I think Gravity, I can imagine, would have worked yeah. well in IMAX. Yeah. I can imagine that that would have worked really, really well in IMAX. So yeah, so he he so I reckon it's I reckon Saturday it's Flash morning. Gordon. You reckon Flash Buck Gordon. Rogers do? I thought Buck Rogers, but then because the thing, spaceships. I, I always had this idea that like Buck Rogers was more of an American thing, and Flash Gordon was like was embraced a lot more over here. Was it just kind of I like? I think no. I think I think that with was Buster American. with think, Buster Crab, it yeah. was he tended to be these sort of larger than life characters, yeah. and I think I think the the British hero was Dan Dare, wasn't it? From yeah, he was like more yeah. No, but I just meant like because I hear a lot more about Flash Gordon than I do about Buck. Oh right, Rogers. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. he was an, an, an American astronaut, wasn't he? I suppose that's why he's quite yeah. firmly identified. Was I suppose Flash Gordon was an American football player, wasn't he? He was, yeah. 
in what in the in the, you're talking in the um, in the film he was, but in I don't the, know in the seventies in the what original was he in the forties. I, I don't really know what he was. I, I don't think they had to say what he was. I think he was just like some sort of. Um, <laughs> well, well, I didn't see in the original, so I wouldn't yeah. know. But yeah, it could 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 be exactly the same. Well, in the days of Studio One, which was in the High Street at Newport, um, oh, and they went through a phase in the nineteen eighties where they re-showed a lot of these forties serials. So before you went to see the film, you got to see episodes and it was literally just one episode yeah and because i used to go off to the cinema once a week i got to see some of these so, so, so he was in the 30s he was american fo- so I, I can't remember but i knew we, we used to see he was he I was a sports star of some sort yeah. 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 so i know we did catch like a tarzan type thing or it might have been an alan Quatermain type adventure rounding around a sort of unlikely looking jungle and then there was this sort of science fictiony one which could have been either flash or buck Mm. Yeah, that'd be, be interesting. Well, we hope that that's helped, Mick. We hope that <laughs> hope this helped you relieve your child a little bit, and maybe we found what it was you were watching. Sean, you have something to say? I was just saying he mentioned like Charlie Chaplin, some of the silent films as yeah. well, which which used to be on TV. I mean, I, I, yes, I don't they think, did have a lot of them on television. I, I I didn't see a silent. I've never seen a silent film at the cinema except for The Artist, but on TV they used to be on TV funnily enough probably Saturday morning TV wasn't it Mo- <laughs> Bob Monkhouse Mad Movies and they used to show all the, the Harold Lloyd and the Charlie Chaplin BBC Two uh, sort of tea times uh, went through a phase That's in the right, 1980s yeah. where you could yeah. watch these yeah and and I mean well I don't, I don't think kids these days would give them a chance but they're, they're still worth a watch I think well I think so I think especially physically I, I personally think that in cinema when you take away the words and just have the actions somehow that's like the purest kind of cinema you can get that's I kind of I kind of think that but I, just one last thing I was thinking because you say why Flash Gordon would be more popular I mean who was the villain that they had a real super villain didn't they Flash Gordon as Ming the Merciless, Ming the Merciless. Yes. I couldn't say who the Buck, Buck Rogers villain was yeah was. You know, yeah, so that's perhaps that's it because the good no, villain was, yes there was a, yeah I can't think who it was I, can't, I cannot remember but everybody knows Ming, Ming the Merciless yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay now funny you should mention Charlie Chaplin because I picked up on him said that he said that so here's some music from a Charlie Chaplin movie called The Circus yeah. there we are ooh that's loud <laughs> Yeah, that's quite quite a long piece of music. But I guess like when it was you're talking about silent movies, if they didn't have anything else, it's like just the movies they go and like they do go through and they do sort of like accent every single bit that goes on mm. because every single thing you see has to be accompanied by the music, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, music yeah. makes the you know sets the yeah atmosphere. It's really. the emotional heart of the beating mm. heart of the film, isn't it? Sometimes. Yeah. All right, cool. So that's it. Thank you very much, Mick. And now we go on to our hidden gem. And this is where we talk about a film that has been, that was made after, oh no, no, I'm getting myself mixed up. A film that was made before 1980, <laughs> but not many people have seen it and it hasn't received its due day in court. This week we have chosen, Sean, what film? Okay, this film is The Iger Sanction. Again, based on a novel by an author called Trevanian. Yep. Um, uh, Clint Eastwood film. It was made after Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, which we had on the film 
we had on this show a couple of months a couple back. of months back yeah so it was made straight afterwards so it stars george kennedy as well yeah which, so they must have worked so well on thunderbolt and lightfoot and there's a scene where it actually shows which i'm not sure if it was scripted or whatever but but the pair of them are in a jeep and they're driving through the desert and they just look like they're they're laughing they just look like they're having a really good time so they must have got on so well you know um well yeah i think yeah because it was it was the thunderbolt and lightfoot connection that brought george kennedy onto this film this film yeah so yeah the the basis premise of this film is um clint eastwood is like a retired assassin he's also an art collector he loves his art and the reason he did the assassinations was because he yeah and that's basically what it was so um oh it opens up in zurich lovely shot of zurich with a a murder and then shoots to clint eastwood where it's like a professor and and then it, you, you find his story where he likes all this art he shows people all this art um and then he gets this this letter that shows like a picasso mm-hmm. which it says this is available for ten thousand. you know if you want to do a job and he goes and he sees the guy uh, albino this this chap's like an albino and he goes yeah, yeah oh you know if you do two sanctions i'll give you the money and you can have the and he says i'll do one sanction but so anyway so they because says, sa- okay. sanctions is what they call assassination yeah, basically yeah. they were yeah. killing so yeah. but just say I'll, I'll, I'll do one sanction and he goes and he, he, he does the sanction and on the way back from from doing the first murder he gets chatted up by this stewardess on the plane you know sort of more or less seduces him ends up yeah they go back together and then he she's pinched the painting and his money and then the albino says oh you, you have to do the second you have to do the second to get the money because sanction to yeah, get the money if you want it back them, yeah. To, yeah yeah so basically he's got to climb this mountain he's got to go on this cl- mountain expedition to the Eiger which you know dangerous mountain and there's there's like a little group of people yeah because uh, if, if if I just sort of like um, oh, because with the, the whole Eiger thing because the second person he has to kill is part of a climbing group. climbing group that's it's it, part, yeah. it's, that's they, right. they, they say like oh, there's this climbing group but there's these people who come from all these different countries are going to be climbing the Eiger Eiger in, um, in Switzerland but we don't know which one of them is a target we know one of them is like you know a person who's like killed one of our agents but we don't know which one of them is a target so you've got to go there be part of this climbing thing and while you're there figure out who the target is yeah. as, as you go figure out who the target is get rid of them get your money so i mean the main part of this movie which i really liked was monument valley because a oh. lot of it takes place because obviously he's got to be he's got to be trained to do the the climbing and there's some some really really fabulous shots of monument valley you know you can and there's this um it's uh, sacred to the indians it's called the totem which is like a a chimney almost mm. yep and um they, they they film there he has to climb up this chimney and you, there's a scene where they're sat on top of the the totem and you've got the whole vista which is absolutely fabulous so i mean like in monument valley was just a bit special you know <laughs> well because this is a film starring Clint Eastwood but also directed by Clint he Eastwood. directed this as well it, yeah it was I think it was the third film that he directed and uh, I, th- well, I was reading up on this because I've actually read the book of this I read you've, the book. you've read I haven't read the book I've yeah I, I read the, the book way before I ever saw the film really and it was like one of these things where I saw the cover of the book and they were like now nah, a major movie and I was like Ugh. and it was probably about a decade before I watched the film because I was I went through this period as a kid where I was just like reading anything I could get my hands on really? so anything I could get my hands on it was like grab that okay read that read that read that read that read that and I guess the I guess actually was one of the things that I got my hands on and I was just kind of like yep reading that so um read it and then saw the Clint Eastwood movie afterwards but it's so he, he he directed it as well and obviously Clint Eastwood having that connection with westerns and everything like that and I think it was John Ford shot a lot of his westerns he in did, Monument yeah. Valley loves, yeah and um, so I was reading the story you were talking about the totem pole, how the Native Americans, for them, it was a sacred. Uh, so when they came in and they wanted to shoot there. So Clint Eastwood, I think for him, it was like a big thing. He wanted to go shoot the bit where the his character is doing all his training on how to climb because he obviously he has to look like a real climber when mm. he gets to it. But so he's doing all this training on how to climb and he wanted to film it there. But they said, no, you can't film it on there. So they had to come up with a deal because people had climbed it before and they'd left like all these sort of um, like, I'm not sure what they call them in climbing parlance, but it's like... like these things. Yeah, when, yeah. Yeah, yeah, when they put... Yeah. yeah, the things they knock into the... the thing they rock, knock into, yeah. And those are all over the rock. 
And so they made a deal with the Native Americans where they, they said, okay, we will go up it and we will pull all these things out and we will restore it to his like unblemished state. Wow. We will restore it to his unblemished state. So these two climbing guys went up, pulled out everything, got to the top of the totem, uh, the totem pole. Then uh, when they got to the top, they got airlifted up by an, a helicopter. Then they, <laughs> then they lifted George Kennedy and Clint Eastwood onto the top of it to film that scene. Ah. To film that scene with it. And... And apparently, Clint Eastwood said that that's probably like that's his favorite um, experience in his entire filming career, just being seeing the sunset, seeing the sunset over Monument Valley. Wow, that he's just that. Uh, so, and I think even though he he originally didn't want to do the film, he didn't want to do the film. He didn't want to do the film. He said he didn't like the story. He didn't like the way it was going. It was like a spy thing, and he didn't like spy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but the only reason he did it is because he didn't like the way I think it was. It's released by Universal. And he didn't like the way Universal had done, had done his first two films. I think Play Misty for Me and I can't remember what the second one was. So he wanted. So this was the third one he had to do to just Wasn't get out of his contract. The Beguiled was it? The Beguiled, yeah. I think it, it? That sounds good. It was the something. It was yeah, the something. The Beguiled. Yeah, and he just wanted to get out of it. He just wanted to get out of his contract. So he had to do this one final film. He did the one final film, got out of his contract, then he could go over to Warner Bros. But so that's why he actually did this film. It was. Oh, that's, I, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, so, so because he is, I mean, basically, I always think he's because he's got a certain swagger, isn't he, Clint Eastwood? Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. He's, totally. he's got through the film. I know he's got that like sort of swaggery, like he's in every which way but loose. It's, it's, it's that sort of that character. I think yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Real sort of confidence, like cocky swagger <laughs> yeah that's, right but that that's just Clint Eastwood I mean, that, that is Clint Eastwood that's yeah. just a massive part of what made Clint yeah. Eastwood him is that he just has that swagger and all that kind of stuff so 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 they get to Zurich and he has to go he has to go do this thing and he has to figure out who the who the thing the, is the, yeah isn't there a thing about his one of them's got a limp doesn't his guy he wants doesn't he have a limp or something he's been told he's been told yeah. that the person he has to get has a limp and that's like the only piece of information yeah, that they like have trait. Yeah. The only piece of information they have about his mark that this person has a limp, so find somebody with a limp and kill them. Yeah, so, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, don't twist your ankle on that week. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. But, but for you, Sean, I mean, what did, what did? Okay, I know you said the Monument Valley stuff, but for you, what actually stands out about this film? Uh, obviously, Monument Valley. I mean, <laughs> having spent some time there, uh, I, I think when you've been to a location, you know, you've, you've actually seen, you've actually, and, yeah. and you actually see it. It's yeah. like, oh, you know, that's. Uh, it's uh, to me Monument Valley where he's doing the training, and I, I would just love to be in that that resort where he did the training. That yeah. that for me is the main part, really. Okay. Yep. That bit. So it's the lead up to the in the lead up to the bit. So to, yeah. yeah, to the actual mountain climb itself. Yeah. So when you mentioned this film and you said, okay, let's talk about the Iger sanction, were you just thinking about that, or were you thinking about the film as a whole? The you, film as a whole, really. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what else about the film? Um. Well, I. I, I can't really put my finger on it just to say that it was you know something that I enjoyed okay I, I, but I can't really say why whether it was because I'm, I'm a fan of Clint Eastwood movies or it was the the shots but just mm. I don't know it just appealed to me but I don't think it did very well actually but I don't think it was very well received was it I don't it, think it, was, it, it had mixed reviews mixed reviews it had yeah. mixed reviews it made, it made more money than it cost to make um, oh that's, that's yeah. good so, so I think it's it, class it, as a hit then is yeah, but it, in Hollywood is weird because they say okay, it cost nine million to make this film. The film made fourteen million, but they're like, oh yeah, but you know, we were expecting it to make double what it made. I think yeah. it, it, I think usually if a film before people start getting happy, before executives start getting happy about a film, it has to make double what it costs to make okay. before before they start getting happy. It, so they want to break even, and then they want to make a profit, and then they want to better make enough money to make more films. Exactly. So they go, oh, we made enough. Let's go make a sequel. It's, it, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. You've got that with the superheroes at the moment, haven't you? Really, I'm wondering if yeah. the bubble's going to burst sometime, and there's going to be like a major flop. Where they say oh. too much. Well, yeah. I mean, we've had some. We've had some, but they've still yeah. made money, haven't they? Yeah, I think I think yes. there will there will be a bu there will be a bubble. I think with some with some film companies more than others, the bubble might be coming soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably guess what that the is. Yeah, bu <laughs> bubble might be coming sooner than rather than later. But I think that there will be a time when they will run out of they will run out of steam, and they'll probably get a bit too big for the britches, and then they'll be like, oh oh oh, back up a bit, back up. Yeah. So it's but I think the of the two major ones, one of them has done enough to I think earn itself enough goodwill. Really, good yeah. Way. But I think the Iger sanction, one of the things. I quite like about it is this whole sort of like almost whodunit atmosphere about it like he goes into this whole thing and it's a bit like you know um, 
it becomes a bit like a sort of like a cabin fever thing like you know uh like the thing or something yeah, where it's quite claustrophobic isn't it's, it? it's, it's kind of like well no i mean it, it's, i think it's more the case of you have all these people around and who is it who is it yeah there is, there is that it's like, yeah. it's like the but I mean, well, we can't really spoilers in the end. Well, we yeah. could, I suppose. So. Yeah, but no, the, well, we, we, they, we do find out who has. The yeah, name. yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that at the end. But we, what I'm saying, if you find out, you find out by the end of the film, but we don't want to, uh, because I actually think that that's one of the good things good about, things the, about film. the film. Good things about the film. Yeah, I, I think that that's Sharon. You've seen it as well. I've seen it as well. Yes. Yeah. I think that, I think that's one of the good things about the film is finding out who his who his target is. Yeah. And I think the the sort of like the way it all kind of gets resolved is kind of. It's kind of clever. <laughs> it's kind of cheaty. It's kind yeah, of, yeah. and I think it's because the the original book I believe was written as a bit of a parody of Bond novels. Ah, as, as, so and uh, I remember seeing this film, and the first Bond film I ever saw was For Your Eyes Only, and that has a massive mountain climbing scene in it. There's a whole mountain climbing set mm. piece in For Your Eyes Only. So um, when I saw this film, I remember thinking, oh yeah, For Your Eyes Only, the climbing of the mountain with Clint Eastwood being crazy because apparently he did all his own stunts and he did he was determined that they would actually film on location. On the, and people were like, this would be easy to film in the studio. He was like, no, it must be on location. And so there's some people who are not really talking to Clint Eastwood since then. <laughs> because You made me so cold. Did, it, someone, yeah. did someone die? Yeah, one person died. Yeah. Uh, a British climber died because there was a rock slide and it knocked him out. And, oh, and cool. yeah, the other guy who was with him was kind of like, you know, a bit, uh, I think, I think blames Clint Eastwood. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I think it is. But I just, I do feel like the, the, so it's kind of like, it's a more, it's a, it's a more understated kind of spy movie, especially because the whole big massive thing is not about pew, pew, pew. Yeah. It's about climbing and it's all about, oh, who's going to, who are we going to get, who, who's going to be. So it's kind of like, you know, almost like a John le Carre light mm, yeah. kind of thing. But you have those parallels. It's like a battle of wits against man against the mountain and then battle of wits. Against each other. Against, against each, each other. other. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's bad enough that this mountain is trying to kill us, but at the same time, I'm also trying to kill one of you. But yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like... So you have those, yeah, you have some layers to it as well. All right. I always like my layers. <laughs> you like layers. All right, I'm going to play some music now from the Iger Sanction. And I uh, was asking Sharon this earlier. I'm not sure if you figured it out yet, but we're going to play the music and see what you can guess which famous composer did the music for the Iger Sanction just by listening to this. Okay, that's the quiz. So, <laughs> so, so, Sharon, can you figure out which famous composer did that? I'm guessing, Sean, you know. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I know. Okay, one. so uh, we'll let Sharon go first, yeah. and then we'll see what Sean, see whether Sean is accurate and whether he does know who this is. I struggle with composers because um, I'm a bit of a folky in, in my heart, so I would probably guess someone like John Williams. Bang on. Bang on. <gasps> Bang on. <laughs> I only know about three film composers. <laughs> He's one of them. That's good. That's yeah, good. yeah no, that's John Williams. But the thing is, like, it just doesn't sound like him at no. all. Because you expect John Williams, you expect like, you know, big, swelling, brass stuff and dun, da 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 Yeah, Superman. And yeah, Superman and, and Star Wars and Jurassic yeah. Park and all that. Uh, this is This is probably his most his most different score yeah. that he's done for anything and uh, he, I think he, he actually says that himself All when right. you were first playing I was thinking like you know, reminiscent of a bit of oh what was it oh the Russian-y thing Russian anything? Oh no, the Russian oh. thing. Doctor Zhivago. I had those elements of Doctor Zhivago, and I thought it's got, but it's got you know, there's some cold elements. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought, no, it's not him. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, cool. Not- okay, now moving on, moving on, we come to the final section of this. Oh, final section of the show where we talk about um, an exception to the rule. 
a film that has been made after 1980 but is good enough to be mentioned in the same breath as any film that we've spoken about so far and now sharon you suggested this film you want to tell us what film you suggested yeah i suggested this film it's um atonement I, which was made in 19 sorry 2007 2000, so quite a recent quite a recent us. film yeah quite a recent film so yeah but yeah i mean it's 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 positively like you know wrong for us to be talking about this film <laughs> a 2007 movie but yeah so tell us uh, because you were talking a little bit about um how you realized that we'd done another thing and there's a link almost between yes. this film and another film we've spoken about tonight yeah the parallels between this and the go-between i think the more i i thought about it they're they're so apparent mm -hmm. but it, oh it's based again it's a literary adaption it's based on a novel by ian McEwan, and it is it's that look at how a childhood event shapes the rest of the protagonist's lives, yeah. all of them. And in this case, the main protagonist is 13-year-old Bryony, who's a young girl played by Saoirse Ronan. And she is very precocious. She's a writer. She writes plays. And she's, again, she's an, a, a beloved daughter of the upper classes. Yeah. And she has a sister, Cecilia, played by Kira Knightley. And... They have a, they grew up with the son of one of their servants, Robbie, played by James McAvoy. James McAvoy. So again, you've got this class thing. This was the between the wars in the and it's again it's a really long hot summer mm -hmm. where it's like an endless summer where there's long summer days, but there's this tension running underneath. And this young girl, Bryony, um, she's seeing things, but she doesn't understand everything that she's seeing. She's yeah. missing all those subtleties yeah. because there's a lot of sort of sexual tension going on. And she, she sees these things, but she doesn't understand what she's seeing. And so she sometimes misinterprets what she reads and what she sees. And so they're having a party and they invited Robbie to come along as a guest that evening, even though he's like the son of a servant and he doesn't really, it's not his social circle, but he's been invited along. Mm -hmm. And he types a note and he types two letters. He types one as like a, a standard thank you for inviting me letter. And then he, in a moment of madness, he types this really sexually explicit note of all the things he's going to do to Cecilia, basically, <laughs> in a couple of... Whoa. Two lines, and it is does use explicit language that you know I wouldn't dare to use <laughs> on the radio. in any circumstances. <laughs> and so he then gives this note to he takes out the note, which he thinks is a polite letter. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'd be loved to. I'll see you at seven thirty. And he gives it to Bryony, take to Cecilia, but he gives her the wrong note. He gives her the sexually explicit note. Yeah. And then as she's walking along, Bryony reads it, and so he immediately thinks that Robbie's a sex fiend. Yeah, because she doesn't understand the words, but she knows that these words are naughty. what she's reading. That it's naughty, and that this is not a nice thing to write. So she's got this vision in her head that somehow that Robbie is some sort of sex fiend, and so she gives this note. and And then in the afternoon, Cecilia's out in the garden, and she has this vase, and she's going to get some water. And it's got such a long hot summer. She goes decides to go for a walk and fill the vase up from the fountain. The, the fountain in the garden, and while she's there. The, Robbie's there and they have this conversation and the, the vase gets dropped into the fountain and so she sort of basically strips to her under and dives in the fountain to get the vase back and Bryony watches this from the window but all she can see is that they're having this conversation Robbie stood there in his fully dressed and suddenly her sister getting undressed diving in the fountain and standing up in this dripping wet underwear yeah. and again she's looking at it thinking what has he done to her because yeah. he looks like he's like in a dominant position he stood upright and he she can't hear the words but she can see the body language it's almost like that her sister's being almost intimidated Yeah. so she's interpreting things that she doesn't understand and then that evening at the party Robbie and Cecilia have an intimate moment in the library and then Bryony interrupts them so she sees this sort of sexual contact between them and then that night one of the other guests a young girl gets attacked in the grounds yeah and they don't see who did it and Bryony said well it's got to be Robbie and so when the police come she blames Robbie for doing it yeah but it wasn't him basically and that's the this sort of where the mirrors the go-between that you see this child events in this childhood shapes the rest of their lives and the reason it's called atonement is because Bryony doesn't realise her mistake then she'd only realise it years later when experience interprets what she saw in a different way so she realises that what she saw and interpreted in one way as a child as an adult she now sees was completely different Yeah, and that it wasn't her sister being assaulted and it wasn't the, the girl in the garden being assaulted uh, uh, she, uh, she, uh, and she tries to atone for those mistakes and she, she essentially she essentially realises that she's pretty much messed up like, she's ruined all she's, of their she's, lives. She's, she's messed up at least two people's lives Yes, she's, she's ruined at least yeah. two people's lives because she's been a precocious 
She's a precocious, well-loved kid who just kind of yeah. says, "This is what I've seen." Yeah, and Robbie and people, being the and people believe yeah. believe her because she's rich. Yeah, and Robbie, son of the poor servant, they don't would never believe anything he had to say. So he's immediately dragged off, and he doesn't want to say, "I wasn't in the garden with this other girl. I was in the library with Cecilia," because he wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. So it. He because can't defend that's not himself. allowed. That's not allowed. And so fast forward a few years, and it's the Second World War, and it's the BEF, the British Security Force, have gone to Europe, and and they've they've all they're all adults now. And yeah. So Bryony then tries to atone, and she, and Robbie's in Europe. Her sister Cecilia has trained to be a nurse, so she herself has trained to be a nurse. Yeah. And she tries to make things right in whatever way she can. Mm. Right. Okay. Now this is a film that I remember. I remember watching. I remember people saying well, it was making a big noise about the film when it was released. And go, oh my god! Oh yeah, this is so good in the story. And I remember this film because it has it has a bit of a twist towards yes. the end. And yeah. it, it it feels and because obviously they keep showing you things from different angles to try and, and explain what's going on. I kind of felt like the the rug kept getting pulled out from underneath my feet while watching this film because you watch it and you're like, okay, cool. This is what's going on. Wait, what's going? No, what? Uh, what, what did he go? Th- th- did that actually did that actually happen? And what is what I'm seeing real, or has that changed and everything like that? And I just remember it being like, and about the only thing in the film that when I first watched it, the only thing in the film where I was almost kind of like, okay, whew, okay, this is definitely happening. I know what's going on. Was when they get to Dunkirk because Dunkirk, Ro- yeah. because Robbie gets um he gets caught up in the well, we were speaking about Dunkirk mm-hmm. earlier, the new Christopher Nolan movie that's yeah. going to be all about the evacuation. But Robbie gets there's a, there's this famous scene where he arrives at Dunkirk arrives on the beach and then they have um, something like a 13 minute tracking shot where it's just one shot that goes round the entire beach and just shows you that this is what was going on this is what it was like on Dunkirk this is who they had to evacuate this is what this is the state that the army was in and this was the early this is like the day one of Dunkirk wasn't it so by the end of the week I mean people were sorted out but this was the first day before they were organised so it was just Chaos, chaos wasn't it yeah yeah and yeah. i yeah because when you see think of the story you think this first half of the film then there's the second half of the film and the second half of the film it's like robbie's point of view is all from his time in the army and at dunkirk and fleeing and then you see little bits when he he's in london mm-hmm. um but yeah the, the big part of it is when he's sort of fleeing through france to get with his little group of men oh. um back to the beach of dunkirk but yeah that is a stunning scene of dunkirk i think yeah yeah it is. It's a stunning scene. It, it, it stands out completely. <laughs> well, yeah, because it does seem like it might be from a totally different film, <laughs> but yeah. in, in some ways, it does feel like it might be. And I think that, and the way the 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 way it kind of ends, because obviously, because of the age age range of um, what's her name, the girl, the main girl, Saoirse Ronan. Yeah, no, the Bryony. character Bryony. Yeah. she's played by three different actresses. Yes, three different. So it's Saoirse Ronan. I can't remember who. Uh, Romila Garay. Yeah, that's it. And then Vanessa Redgrave. Vanessa Redgrave as an old woman. Yeah, yeah. Play, plays the older Bryony. Looking back at the different stages of her life. Yeah. yeah, looking back at different stages of her life and speaking to somebody. And I feel it's a bit of a spoiler to say what she says towards the end of the film. Yeah, I think I feel it's a bit of a yes, spoiler. Yes, it's But yeah. she's interviewed by Anthony Minghella. And he's got an unnamed... It isn't, he's not named. He's just like an unnamed character. He's basically interviewing her. Yeah. Which is completely different to the book, by the way. Yes, it's an adaption. The book has a... Has a she has a party and she's got all her family there and so you have this big denouement with her family there yeah. but this is the way they've tapped into it was like they made they asked questions of Vanessa Red of old Bryony and it's yeah Anthony Red, Anthony Miguel are doing the interviewing yeah, so a good old island connection there yeah. as well woohoo island connection woo-hoo. island connection we Brilliant. love them we love them <laughs> we do like those so, so Atonement good film worth tracking down yeah I think it's an interesting film and again it's got those layers of that childhood experiences, how that, that how some childhood will live, will affect your later life, as with Leo in the Go Between, and how you've got this sort of long hot summer, how you how sometimes you remember things a certain way, and this sort of had something about long summers, isn't it, that tends yeah. to capture people's imaginations yeah. and. Yeah, long long summers. Are, we we could pretty much do a whole show just about yeah. movies about long summers. Yeah. <laughs> and how they have this hidden, un- there's a dark undercurrent, the perfect weather that hides sort of this sort of dark underthreads. Yeah, it's always in um, long hot summers that they find a body. Yeah, it's always <laughs> always in in movies. All yeah. right, now. Oh, so yeah, it's a good film worth checking out. Here is some music from Atonement. Uh, the it's called Farewell. I think this is played towards the end of the film. And um, yeah, then we'll come back and we'll talk about what we've seen at the cinema recently. Uh, yeah, I've not seen the time. Haven't you? No.
Yep, and that is Farewell from the Soundtrack of Atonement. Yes. And in one of those pieces of strange symmetry that we get on this show, we mentioned uh, Anna Karenina before. Yep. Bring uh, on the train. It was <laughs> Anna Karenina was directed by the director of Atonement. Of oh, Atonement, Joe I was Wright. thinking Joe yeah. Wright, yeah. yeah. And starring Kira Knightley. And starring Kira Knightley as well. Yeah, I'm still saying So we have our strange. That strange moment of symmetry. Oh, yeah. film is just one big family, isn't it? It is, really. It yes, just one Interconnects in strange indeed. and wonderful ways. Everybody is John Ford's son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Well, with that being the case, there's nothing left. To, uh, we have to wrap up, and we just have to say thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Mick, for joining us. Thank you, Sean and Sharon. Go home, get well soon. I remember that, as always, as we say on this show, they, they don't, don't make them like, like they used, used to. to. Thank you very much, and good night. Let's go and sort this out. Then.